back to another episode of Nina's Digest. Today I'm going to get back into the eating instinct. I'm just going to do one chapter today. But before I do, I thought I would give a little update on what's happening with me now. Um, It is Friday, September 2nd as I'm recording this and on Sunday I'm going to be driving back to New Orleans. So by the time this comes out on Monday, I will be waking up as a New Orleans resident for the first time in a while. Um, In a couple of weeks, I'm going to start working as the registered dietitian at Ocean's Behavioral Health. And so that position is going to have me kind of running around to different behavioral health facilities and to one nursing home in the New Orleans area. I'm really excited about that and um, they were in my interview process they were super receptive to my ideas about how to combine um, you know sort of nutrition counseling especially in a group setting with people with diagnosed psychiatric problems and also with substance abuse issues so that's super exciting but Today I want to talk about chapter five of the eating instinct, which is called eating while black. And so this chapter kicks off by introducing a 40 year old black woman named Sharita who Virginia meets in her home. So Sharita has taped up photos of mostly thin white models on her wall and she has been dieting for years. She tells Virginia that she grew up in poverty and wasn't raised on what is considered to be quote, healthy food unquote. And so here it's important to mention that about 13% of Americans live in households that experience some level of food insecurity. And this is defined by the, at the very least, having some anxiety related to where food will be coming from. But food insecurity does vary and there are, I believe, three different levels to it right now that have been identified. So some folks experiencing food insecurity don't get enough variety, some are actually eating unsafe foods or undesirable foods, and then others, if you're at the most severe level of food insecurity, actually experience a marked decrease in the available quantity of food and food intake actually decreases. So Virginia points out correctly that poverty and food insecurity impact people of all races and ethnic groups. She notes that A quarter of food insecure people live in households earning more than 185% uh, of the poverty line. And so this is too much to qualify for assistance, but it's still low enough to experience food insecurity and to struggle on some level to feed your family or yourself. However, in this chapter, Virginia notes that she's chosen to focus on black families specifically because they are still impacted the most by hunger and poverty. For example, In 2015, 24% of Black Americans lived in poverty compared to 8% of white Americans. Another reason why she wanted to focus on Black Americans here is because Black Americans are often the focus of this alternative food movement. Um, They're sort of identified as those with the problems, quote unquote, problems that need to be solved. And she writes that those efforts reveal a lot about our country's complex relationship with race, class, and food. So Virginia walks through a grocery store with Sharita and they're talking about how she has used prostitution not as a means to 
get drugs because she does have a history of drug addiction, but she viewed it as a means for a trip to Whole Foods to buy some healthy food for her family. One of the things that Sharita tells Virginia during this trip is that even more than the addict stereotype, she hates this perception that poor, especially black people, simply are lacking the education around what foods are healthy and what type of eating best supports our bodies or that they don't care about healthy eating. She says, people think we're stupid and we don't know that's unhealthy. She told me one afternoon as we walked through the grocery section of her neighborhood dollar store, which is lined with paper cups of ramen noodles and generic canned meats. We know, of course I want my baby to eat green smoothies and kale, but that shit is too expensive. Another component to Sharita's story is the disordered eating component. And I think this is so important to think about, especially for anyone who works in healthcare as a nutrition professional, because eating disorders and disordered eating often go undiagnosed in someone who's experiencing poverty and especially in black people. And so Sharita, for example, says that she feels that she's broken the cycle of poverty, especially on days when she's able to eat as little as she did at the height of her, what she considers to be her hunger years, her the years when she was unable to buy enough food. She said that she tries to eat less than a thousand calories a day, maybe about 500. And now that's not out of financial necessity, but it's because now that she no longer considers herself to be poor, she realizes that it is a privilege to diet and now it's that she wants to be thin. So this just goes back to, you know, this perception that a lot of people still hold of eating disorders that, you know, the typical eating disorder manifests as a often thin white body that is not the case and absolutely no one is immune to disordered eating or eating disorders. And we really need to get that trope out of our heads, especially for anyone who works as a dietitian or in any you know aspect of healthcare. So back to the alternative food movement and how that has impacted people who experience food insecurity. Virginia talks about people who, you know, maybe they're receiving food stamps, maybe they are living at or below or around the poverty line, but have these efforts that have been directed towards people living in poverty, the alternative food movements efforts, have they actually helped those people in any way, shape or form? I I don't think so. Um, I think that I agree with Virginia that instead what it has done is it has created just an entirely new set of unattainable standards that are really, really hard to reach, especially for someone who is receiving assistance. And this ties back into this idea that, you know, people who are in poor health or who maybe are living in poverty or who 
are experiencing food insecurity, that one of the main things that they're simply lacking is nutrition education or education about healthy eating. And part of the alternative food movement has been to bring farmers markets to neighborhoods that don't have access to food. But what Virginia has learned from speaking one-on-one with people who have experienced poverty and food insecurity is that they're not lacking the education. They do have the desire to eat those foods that they perceive to be healthy. But, you know, and this makes a lot of sense, there is not the time or the money to spend on healthy food, on preparing healthy food, when maybe you're working several jobs, when you get home late at night and the priority actually is just eating something rather than, you know, compiling as many resources as you can, resources that you can't probably dedicate to food in order to come up with something that's considered to be healthy. And the reality is that we have data that shows that people eat better when they are paid more money. When people have higher incomes, they eat better. There is no shortage of information out there, you know, general nutrition information. This is not to say that the role of a dietitian can't, you know, that it doesn't have its place when individuals have their own unique questions that pertain to their own bodies. Of course, that's important, but when it comes to the general nutrition advice, people people know no matter what level of income they're at, no matter how much poverty they're in, people know what's considered to be healthy and what's considered to not be healthy. And really the problem here is that food assistance benefits need to be increased and fair wages need to be increased. That message, if that message were to be louder than the message about what fat people or unhealthy people should and shouldn't be eating, a lot of our problems I think would be solved. And quickly, just to go back to this aspect of, or this concept of disordered eating in the context of poverty, Virginia speaks with a woman named Janet Poppendeek, I believe is how you say her name. She's the author of Free for All, Fixing School Food in America. And she says that she often hears people say things like, those people can't be hungry, they're fat, which is just, you know, infuriating on so many levels. But what she talks about is that food insecure families may be more prone to obesity because their bodies are almost always in that crash diet mode, which does slow down your metabolism. And the effect that that has on physical health, that doesn't really begin to get at even how living in a food insecure environment changes your feelings about food. So you can't really teach a kid to honor, for example, their hunger and fullness cues if um, if there isn't food to be given. So kids in food insecure households learn pretty quickly not to express their hunger and not to find ways to satisfy their hunger. And then what that teaches is that when the opportunity does present itself, 
to eat some food. People learn to eat more than they really want to eat because your body is in this fight or flight mode kind of of recognizing, okay, food is available right now. I need to make sure to have as much of it as I can because I don't trust that this food will be available in the future when I'm hungry again. Another really interesting thing that is discussed in this chapter is this idea of sort of white people going into especially black communities and, you know, like I mentioned previously, bringing in farmers markets, for example, or other programs to encourage healthy eating. And she speaks to a woman named Shakira who says, you know, I'm tired of this narrative that when you're entering into a black community, you're not going to encounter someone who's informed about healthy eating or who is informed about cooking or how to grow food or anything that relates to the food system as a whole. She says, our food system only exists because of black people. American agriculture developed out of slavery. American cuisine comes from our foodways and our recipes. And she gives the example of kale. So, you know, kale today is always the go-to when people are talking about um, a food that's considered to be healthy and it is, you know, Virginia mentions that it's always thought of as one of the whitest, most hipster of all vegetables. Um, Well, it was originally grown by black farmers in the South who would cook it in these massive pots with, along with other greens like collard greens, mustard greens, and then with ham hocks. But now we've got this concept of, you know, it's the, the white savior complex of people going into black communities, starting these programs, bringing in farmers markets and suggesting that the problem is just that you may, this community needs to be taught how to grow and use these foods, despite the fact that going back to slavery, these are foods that have been, you know, a part of the black American diet. Another component to this chapter that I thought was so interesting and that I honestly didn't know about is related to the farm to table movement um, and just not really the movement itself, but just farm to table cuisine, the concept as a whole. When you hear that, you might think about Alice Waters and Chez Panisse and um, because that is the name that's so at least for me, has always been so closely associated with the with farm-to-table cooking. But in this chapter, it's pointed out that Edna Lewis, who was born in 1916, the granddaughter of Virginia slaves, she grew up to work as a chef in some of our country's best restaurants, and she wrote a cookbook called The Taste of Country Cooking. And this book is, lately it's become more and more popular it's sort of seeing a resurgence she in this book she describes cooking freshly caught trout over wood fires and how she used to measure baking soda on coins when she was a kid while cooking she wrote about growing harvesting and foraging for food along with cooking it So this is all to say that farm-to-table cuisine wasn't invented in Berkeley in the 1970s. (laughs) And this is just, you know, one example of the, you know, what Virginia calls the cultural amnesia that we have about 
our history of our food and the, the true roots of where, where a lot of our food and the culture surrounding food comes from. One of the last components to this chapter that I want to talk about is revolving this idea that people who get food assistance, people who are on food stamps, are you know using their benefits to eat unhealthy foods almost that it almost gets discussed in a way that is you know as if people who are using food stamps have almost nefarious intentions with using food stamps and that you know i think it's used in a way to undermine the validity of providing food stamps to people or to undermine their effectiveness and maybe to suggest that they shouldn't be available. So in November of 2016, the USDA came out with this report that explained how food stamp recipients were spending their benefits. So the media kind of really latched onto this and went crazy along with some advocacy groups because there was one small finding from the report that said that people who used food stamps spent about 5% of their dollars on soda. The New York Times covered this story and the headline was in the shopping cart of a food stamp household, lots of soda. And the photo along with the article was just a shopping cart that was completely filled with Coke. And Mary Nestle, who is a, she's a nutrition professor at NYU, she's quoted as saying that the report was pretty shocking and she called the government's SNAP program, quote, a multi-billion dollar taxpayer subsidy of the soda industry, unquote. So Virginia says that that rhetoric fit in really nicely with this idea that Poor Americans have just been, you know, unfortunately brainwashed by food companies to the point that they don't know what is healthy, what is unhealthy, what's nutritious, what's not, and how to make food choices. But, uh, you know, this makes absolutely no sense because a deeper reading of that report showed that this group of people that were spending 5% of their food dollars on soda they're not buying more really any more soda than other Americans who spend about 4% of their food dollars on soda. Uh, everyone is pretty much buying the same amount of soda. And this report, you know, when not compared with the average amount of soda bought in all households throughout the United States, um, it, you know, it's easy to present that statistic of, oh my gosh, 5% of food dollars are spent on soda. It's easy to present that to people and try to get people riled up because of it and say, oh my goodness, can you believe that this is what our food stamp dollars are being spent on? And I want to end this chap- this discussion of this chapter by talking about a community-driven model that Virginia talks about, sort of this shift from a paternalistic approach to providing health to a more community-driven model that allows people to be the authorities on their own bodies and to have more of a say in what they want their health to look like. So she talks about our cultural needs and our need to separate messages about thinness as a beauty ideal from conversations about diabetes and blood pressure. She says, quote, 
well, she says, we need to, quote, accept that people who don't look like our picture of health can still be authorities on their own bodies. The need to stop viewing processed foods as not foods and start understanding the significant roles they play in people's lives and the need to end the white savior model of food activism and replace it with something more authentic. If we could all do that, Sharita might still have skinny fitness models taped to her vision board, but maybe they could look a little more like her. All right, guys, that's going to be it for chapter five. In the next episode, I'm going to go over the last two chapters, chapters six and seven. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.